Hey, welcome to Rockbridge Community Church. You're at one of our six physical locations. You're watching online. We're one church, multiple locations, multiple languages, and you're not here by accident. My name is Matt. Again, welcome. Glad that you all are here. This is a great weekend to be part of Rockbridge and to participate because this is a weekend we're encouraging everyone who is not connected in a circle of spiritual friends being known spiritually, being encouraged, edified, encouraged spiritually to join, to be in a what we call a small group. And there are so many opportunities throughout all six of our locations, opportunities online. You've got something in your hand if you're here physically that gives you some opportunities. When you leave, there's a in our Connect Here lobby space areas, you can have a conversation about getting connected to one of these small groups. And again, if you're online, we've also got those opportunities available for you. So definitely want to encourage you to prayerfully consider that step because here's what we know from God's Word, right? When He says, do not give up the habit of meeting together, here's what we know. God has ordained that grace will flow through communities of His people gathered together, being spiritually known and spiritually encouraged. Hey, we're continuing our series as we are walking verse by verse, for the most part, through the book of 1 Samuel. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it's just one book, Samuel. In our Bible, it's 1 and 2 Samuel. So we're in uh, 1 Samuel, and this incredible story of where Israel is going to ask God for an earthly king. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're meeting ourselves in the story. So quick review in chapter 1. Uh, an, an infertile lady named Hannah wanted to be a mom and asked God for a son. And she was depressed and distressed. But in prayer, God changes her heart. And she asked God for the son, but she says, God, I'm going to give him back to you. And he'll serve you in the temple. And she comes to know God's sufficiency and supremacy. That it's not a son and being a mom that will satisfy her, it is God's presence and a relationship with him that will satisfy her soul. In part two, we looked at the seriousness of sin. And then last week, we looked at how God's work always begins and advances through his word to us. And this week, we continue with what has become the paradigm of 1 Samuel, this little fill-in-the-blank. And, and we meet ourselves here where Israel is going to say, hey, God... We would have greater happiness, security, and identity if you would give us a king. They haven't asked him for it yet, but it's coming. That God, if you would just give us a king. Hannah, God, if you would just give me a son. And we've said, hey, God, we re we've said, hey, we relate to God the same way. God, if you could just give me a better job. God, if, I, if you could just get me out of singlehood. God, if you could just take this away or bring this into my life, then I, too, would have greater happiness, security, and identity. And, and this week... As we jump into chapter 4, here's what we're going to bump into, okay? Here's the tension that we're going to bump into. What happens when God doesn't cooperate with this at all? At, at all. And there's reasons why he doesn't do it, as we'll explore. But what happens when things don't go our way and God doesn't seem to help? And, and, and listen, I, I've been in this situation. I bet you've been in this situation. I bet most of us, some of us today are in this situation God, things are not going my way. <clears throat> you know, the blank is empty. God doesn't seem to be present. So what do we do about the blank? Some of us walk away from God. Some of us grow distant from God. Some of us doubt God. Some of us become nominal in Christians in name only. Some of us abandon our faith. Some of us try to become more and more religious so we can get God to help us get things going in our way. But I think there's a general sense in, in our entire nation, certainly in the, in the church 
<coughs> excuse me, big C church in America where this, this dynamic has led to a lot of frustration. In fact, the spirit of our age might be known as the spirit of frustration. Things not going our way. What the status of morality, Christianity in America, the status of your life or your situation or your job or your family or your marriage. And so we're frustrated and that shows up with anger and bitterness, road rage, violence, slander, uh, going off on people on social media, becoming cynical about God, church, your life, your future, etc. So we have this age of frustration. And so we need to kind of lean into this text and see what God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired to be in this, in this book of the Bible to help us deal with this challenge of when things do not go our way. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we begin reading in verse 1. We left off here. It says that Samuel wor- Samuel's words came to all Israel. We will not hear of Samuel again for about several, like three or four chapters, and we're going to focus on something else. But we see that God is raising up a new prophet to bring his word to Israel. And now let's look at the challenge. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines. Things did not go their way. Who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So we have 4,000 casualties of war. And this causes a crisis because there's been promises that God had made to Moses and to Joshua, the forefathers of Israel, that, hey, you do not ever have to be defeated in battle. So, so they're wondering what's wrong and, and why are things not going our way? And they, they ask the question we ask, God, what's going on? Why haven't you helped us? So the troops come back to the camp and the elders hear what happened and they ask the question. And it's a valid question. Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? So they recognize that God is sovereign. There's no accidents in the universe. And they recognize that, hey, maybe something's off with them and God. Maybe they're not relating to God correctly. (coughs) And they ask the question. And then they come up with a solution. And it seems like the perfect solution because it looks spiritual. It looks religious. They say, let's bring (coughs) the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim, part of the Ark's covering. Now, this all looks spiritual, and it looks good because they're doing something religious. It's kind of like, hey, I'm back in church. Hey, I'm back reading my Bible. Hey, I'm praying more. Hey, I'm cussing less. You know, all those kind of things where we say, hey, God, look at what I'm doing. All those kind of things where we say, hey, I'm suddenly starting to do my part, so God, shouldn't you do your part? But the author of Samuel, 1 Samuel, wants us to see that behind the exterior, and when you pull back the curtain and look inside, things are not good. This This is show, this is religious activity without heart devotion and heart allegiance and he shows us this by bringing up the two sons of Eli we talked about them in part two they're evil and their names are Hophni and Phinehas they were there with the ark of the covenant of God problem so what this shows us 
when things don't go our way is we have a tendency to turn things into what I would call rabbit's foot religion, right? That, hey, the ark is going to be my lucky rabbit's foot. We bring the ark out. God's going to be on our side. God's going to have things go our way. Who hasn't thought? Who hasn't? I've thought it. Who hasn't thought? Hey, God, I haven't missed church in 17 weeks. God, I have been praying more days than not, reading your word more days than not. I haven't gone out and gotten wasted. I haven't been cussing. I've been treating the wife better. And God, you haven't done anything. God, you still haven't filled in the blank. And see, here's the error, and we're going to look at four errors that we make with God when things don't go our way. Here's here's number one. We're trying to get God to do what we want. We're trying to get God to do what we want. It's transactional. It's treating God as like a divine bellhop. And you ring the bell, and he's supposed to show up and do what we want. We could ask ourselves, why are we in church this morning, this weekend? Why did we have our quiet time if we did? Was part of the reason that, hey, God, if I do this, then you ought to do that. And see, isn't that kind of why we drift to being superstitious? We were in control. And, And it's simple, right? I do this, God has to do that. I have my lucky rabbit's foot. Things should go my way today. I bring, we bring the ark out. We should beat the Philistines in battle. <clears throat> and it looks all good. Look at verse 5. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. This looks like a revival service. This looks like a service where everybody's into worship and everybody's singing and everybody's raising their hands and all those things that make us think that we're spiritual and make us think that, oh, we're so holy and, oh, we're so religious. And, man, oh, God's going to take notice. But behind it, who's with the ark? Evil, Hophni and Phinehas. What's going on in their heart? Nothing. They're trying to control God. So they've taken our fill-in-the-blank equation, and here's what they've done. God, we want military success. That's what we need. That would make us happier, more secure. (coughs) So to get God to give them military success, they just insert the ark. Like we might insert some other superstition or method of religion to say, God, you like me now. God, you owe me now because, hey, we've brought out the ark. God, I've been in church. God, I've been praying. Here's the problem with that. Think of what it says. How are they viewing God and how are they coming to God? They're coming to God not because he's worthy. They're coming to God because he might be useful. Isn't that how some of us come to God? Because he might be useful. I mean, when things are good, God's like that tool in your tool shed or in your garage and you, that you only bring out when you absolutely need it three times a year, twice a year, <coughs> seasonally and circumstantially, because then it's useful. But, in, but before that, I have no need for it. And, and what we're seeing is, hey, God's worth always comes before our wants. If God never, ever, ever fills in the blank, he is still worthy. If God never does what we want, what we think, what we would do if we were God, he is still worthy. 
Now, let's flip it and go from the Philistine perspective and learn an error by watching the Philistines. So they hear the camp of the Israelites having this church service that looks spiritual but is far from it because the heart hasn't changed. The heart's still far from God. I mean, you can be in church and still be far from God. You can be in the Bible and still be far from God. You can pray every day and still be far from God. But the Philistines don't know this. So they hear the sound of the war cry, and they ask, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp. <coughs> they said, woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And they take us back to Exodus and when Israel was under slavery of Pharaoh. And what's amazing about this is the Philistines have a better memory of God, Yahweh's power, than do the Israelites. They know this God, they call it gods, they're confused, but they know this God is not to be messed with, much less manipulated through superstitious religious activity. But their associated action reveals some hypocrisy. So they know this is going on in Israel's camp. They assume Israel's gods are going to fight for Israel. This makes them nervous. So here's what they do. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. <coughs> Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So they're like, hey, we got to go take care of business. We got to go and we got to overcome this challenge. So I think you and I are a lot like the Philistines. And, and let's understand this, okay? Here, here, here's what I mean by this. If they believe Yahweh was greater than their gods, then surrender to him. Why would we not surrender if we know God is greater? If God is good and great and majestic, why do we resist our surrender? But we do. Well, let's flip it. If they believed Yahweh was less than their gods, then why are they panicking? And isn't that like us? I mean, some of us, when we think about our relationship with God, we're, we, we're nervous, but we're not surrendered. We're a little bit, you know, have a little bit of that holy fear of God, but not enough to put our yes on the table, not enough to give God our surrender. And so what do they do? The same thing we do. They go fight, but they fight in the flesh instead of fighting their flesh, right? So they start fighting. We got to go fight. We got to go make something happen. We got to fill in the blank. We got to take charge. Yeah, God, we're going, we, we know we should give you the steering wheel of our lives, but in this area, in this situation, you know, God, we're going to be a better driver than you. God, why don't you go be the co-pilot, right? So, so the error they make, we make it too. They're fighting the wrong battle. They're fighting the wrong battle. The right battle, listen, when things don't go our way, We want to control God with religion and superstition. We want, to control, we want to take control of the situation and force and fight. 
or we want to withdraw and become passive and live in isolated defeat. But the right battle, when things don't go our way, is to get to surrender. <coughs> get to surrender. Get to the spot where we can say, not my will, but your will be done. Isn't this the battle Jesus fought in the Garden of Gethsemane? He didn't want to die. He could call upon a legion of angels to come and rescue him. But every time, not my will, but your will be done. You have to resist the urge to take the steering wheel back from God. You have to resist the urge to try to manipulate the God, your God, God through religious activity. And you have to look at your heart and say, can I put my yes on the table? Can I get to surrender? So we've seen the Israelite side. We've, now we've seen the Philistine side. What happens when they fight? The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. The ark didn't do anything. And each man fled to his tent and the slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. So the casualties are 34,000. The ark of God was captured and as prophesied and predicted, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. <clears throat> it's a good time to ask this question. Why is there so much violence in the Bible? And, and it's going to take us to where we're going in, in era number three and era number four. Why is there so much violence in the Bible? 34,000 die. Well, let me, let me share three reasons. <coughs> the first is it shows what people are capable of apart from, apart from God. When God and government or civil authorities are not restraining the evil that's in the human heart, violence, death, destruction happens. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 says to Israel, you'll never lose a battle if you always walk in obedience to God. But when you don't walk into obedience with God, there are consequences. There are moral consequences. There are physical consequences. There are relational consequences. And, and so when we see violence in the Bible, it is a reflection of accurate reality. Because aren't all of us a little bit naive? I mean, deep down, all of us want to believe all our kids are good kids. Deep down, all of us want to believe, hey... People are basically good, that if they got a little more education, had better parenting, you know, if they had more counseling and more therapy, every, the world would just be a better place. And that's not reality. That's not reality. The reality is the human heart, apart from God and restraints, is a wrecking ball of violence that overflows out of it. It can do that through our tongues. It can do that through our hands. It can do it through war and guns and violence. That's a heart problem. Number two... Physical evil reflects the moral evil of treason against God, and that seriousness shows up in the Scriptures. If we did it God's way, everything would be perfect, and there would be no death, there would be no violence. Nature would be functioning perfectly, right? But the, the Scriptures show that, hey, the problems of the world are all traced back to the epicenter, ground zero of the problems of the world are our treason against God. And, and isn't it crazy, right? We all get morally self-righteous and morally indignant if somebody robs us, if somebody cuts us off in traffic, if somebody doesn't get caught, you know, for a crime that we don't commit. You know, we get morally indignant, but nobody's losing any sleep about their own treason against God. 
And so 34,000 men die in one, like, in two battle interactions. And we're like, oh, God's so mean, and oh, God's so violent. But we've never asked ourselves, hey, what have we done? We've committed treason against God. And then the third reason is that God has a plan to save and to redeem. And that plan comes through violence, the violence of death of Jesus on the cross. Look at Revelation 13, 8. All those who live on the earth will worship it. That's the beast of blasphemy. And everyone whose name was not written from the beginning, the foundation of the world, the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. So before God said, let there be light, God had ordained there would be a lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would be slaughtered to redeem us from the evil of sin. That's God's plan to save us from ourselves. And so what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is violent, it's bloody, it's confusing. What's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is God is relating to his people differently than he did in Egypt when he was their deliverer, when he was the Almighty parting the Red Sea. He's relating to them differently than he did in the wilderness when he provided manna from heaven and he was their provider and their good father. He's relating to them differently than he did when he gave them the Ten Commandments and the law, the law as guardrails against the evil that inhabits the human heart. What God is showing up as now with the death of Hophni and Phinehas and the, the, the death, the violent deaths in battle is God is showing up as a fire. <clears throat> and we will make a mistake in relating to God when things do not go our way if we do not know God as fire. Now, I'm going to unpack what that means. It's a reference that is throughout, found throughout Scripture of God as fire. Now, let me say this, though. Most of us, we want God as our friend, and He is. We want God as our counselor, Oh, and oh, he is. We want God as our good, good father, our perfect, our father who art in heaven. And he is. We want God as our savior and our Messiah. And he is. We want God <coughs> as our provider, as our deliverer, as our rescuer. And he is. But God is also fire. And if we fail to know him as fire, we miss his best. We miss his purpose. We are blinded by the things that are not going our way when we fail to perceive by faith one of the ways in which God works is he shows up as fire. Let's see this in scripture. Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 12. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful by it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God <coughs> is a consuming fire. We see the power of fire. We've seen it in Maui, in Hawaii, right? A consuming fire is indiscriminate. A consuming fire devours. A consuming fire destroys. But God is also presented as a different kind of fire in Malachi. 
In Malachi 3, it says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. (coughs) Now, a refiner's fire is a fire with a purpose. A refiner's fire is a fire that wants to remove the bad and leave the best to purify things like precious metals or gold. A refiner's fire has purpose. A refiner's fire is not indiscriminate. A refiner's fire is more like a surgeon's scalpel than a hatchet. And so the question is, will we know God as a refiner's fire? Or will we know God as a consuming fire? In 1 Samuel chapter 4, God is not giving up on Israel. God is not giving up on his purposes for his chosen people to be the mechanism and the means for which the Messiah comes into the world. But God is relating to them as he often does to us. And the clue might be things are not going our way. He's relating to them as a refiner's fire. What does it mean that our God... The God of the Bible, the one true living God, is like a fire. Well, the first thing is, it means God is seriously and dreadfully holy. And those adjectives I've used are intentional. He is seriously and dreadfully holy. If you're in your house, you're at your job, and someone comes rushing in and says, fire, fire, fire. You never, you, instinctively, you don't think, oh, that's a good thing. You know something dreadful has gone wrong and something serious is happening. When God in Scripture is described as a fire, when God in our lives is relating to us as a fire, it is serious and it is important that we lean in. Now, the second reason that God appears as a fire is we need to be refined. We are all impure people. We need the refiner's fire. We need God to remove things from us. We need God to remove impurities for us. In in fact, let me say this. If God were only a consuming fire, the population of heaven would be zero. If God were not a fire at all, the population of heaven would be zero because there would be no pure people that could enter God's holy presence. Now, whether God appears in your life and in your eternity as a consuming fire or a refining fire has everything to do with what you do with Jesus. If Jesus is on the throne of your life, If you have given Jesus the steering wheel of your life and the sins that you have committed, past, present, and future, and you have said, Jesus, I want you to be my king. Jesus, I want you to fill in my blank. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I believe you died for me. Then you will know God as a fire, but not as a consuming fire, but as a refining fire. And the reason 
This passage of chapter 4 on the outskirts looks so dreadful and so serious, and it is. And it looks like a devastating defeat for Israel. And it is in that moment of time, but that moment is designed to move Israel forward to be more of the people God wants them to be and ordain them to become. So God is also like a fire because he does not abandon impure people. He does not abandon impure people. But he does show up in their lives as a fire, a refining fire, to move them forward in his story of glory. In fact, let's look at this from the New Testament perspective. This is on the other side of the cross on the other side of Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, something new, new genes, new DNA that replaces the evil into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our future as God is working on us. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Things not going your way. So that the proven character of your faith may be more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has a future for his people. That is glorious and great. That is beautiful and amazing. But we have to be refined. To fully receive it. So what's happening in 1 Samuel 4. Is God is relating to his people. He's not giving up on his people. He's not coming indiscriminately to destroy his people. He's refining his people. He's refining them so they can be the people through which David will come and ascend to the kingship, through which God will promise him you will have a kingdom that will not end, which points to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom we long for, the kingdom we pray for, the kingdom we work for, the kingdom of which we are a citizen of if Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our Savior. So this battle defeat happens, and a messenger comes to give Eli the news of the battle, the capture of the ark, and the death of his sons. The messenger says, Israel has fled from the Philistines. There was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both dead, and the ark of God has been captured When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate because he knows what the ark symbolizes. He fell off, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Now we know he became heavy because he was sinning, eating the unauthorized sacrifice. And we saw that in part two of this series. And so we see judgment coming upon Eli as well. And again, yet another tragedy But the inspired author inserts this. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. So why does he put that in there? Well, it does give us a time stamp. 
but it also tells us that something new and fresh is coming. And we know, because we've been reading and working through this book together, we know what that is. That is the priesthood ministry, the prophetic ministry of Samuel. And through Samuel will come David, and through David will come Jesus Christ. So Eli, the old, hard-hearted, sinful priest who had allowed the priesthood to degrade and to become something so far removed from what God originally planned, he is now out of the picture. So God has a new work, a new wave, a new wind, a fresh wind through a fresh refining fire that is coming upon his people. So there is hope in chapter 4. Because see, the temptation in the refiner's fire is to think, oh my goodness, God's given up, God's moved on. But no, 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 no. Yes, Eli had a 40-year term, but Samuel's coming. David's coming. And praise the Lord, Jesus is coming. Meanwhile, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and she gave birth because her labor pains came upon her. And here's what she named her son. She named him Ichabod, which means the glory has gone or the glory has departed from Israel. And this was referring to the capture of the ark of God, the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. Now, this is her perception. In a sense, the glory of God has departed, but in another sense, God's still working. It's just through the refining fire. The glory of God has departed Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. But here's what we see because we know about Samuel in the background. And we know that God, yes, can be a consuming fire, but to, to his people, he is a refining fire. So he hasn't given up on Israel. Yes, he's moved past Eli, Hophnius, and Phinehas, but he has a plan. He has a, a path. He has a purpose, and it will prevail. And so here's where we have to be when we find ourselves questioning God in the refiner's fire. We realize that the furnace of affliction and the furnace of adversity for people in the family of God is always for refinement and never for destruction. And if the purpose is for refinement, it is so we can appear before Christ at the second coming and receive that praise, glory, and honor. So don't misunderstand God as fire. If you are a part of the forever family of God, he's refining, not for destruction. But so you can say in your heart right now, if you're in the refiner's fire, you can still say the best is yet to come. And so the final error we make, though, is when God seems to depart, just like Eli's daughter-in-law. It seems like God has moved on. It seems like God has withdrawn. And listen. We feel like God is absent. He's not, but he pulls back maybe the special grace of giving us a sense of his presence. Bible reading feels dull. Going to church feels meh. And most of us then are tempted to what? Close our Bible and quit going. That's the wrong response. We don't understand what God's doing when he seems to pull back from us, when we don't have a sense of which way's north and which way's south and which way's left and which way's right, we feel lost, we feel confused, our faith feels almost dead. But there's a sense where God is doing something in that. And, and it kind of comes through the phrase of absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
When do you really appreciate a cold glass of water on a hot day like we're having right now throughout the United States of America? And so when God pulls back, there's a design that his departure or we feel his absence heightens or awakens our desire for God. You know, water's water, right? But I tell you, some of the best water I've ever tasted in my life is when I was practicing sports outside and the coach would blow the whistle and say, water break, and we all run over to the coolers and everything, and you drink that water. That's the best tasting water in the world. Why? Because we were thirsty. Jesus says if you're thirsty, he's living water. If you're weary, he will give you rest. It's through these absences of God's felt, experienced presence that God is trying to awaken or reawaken our desire for him. Israel, you desired a military victory. Israel, you thought you could manipulate God through the ark instead of giving God your surrender. Israel, wake up. What you need is just God. It's the same for us. Now, we talked about living in this age of frustration when things don't always go our way. But here's what we realize under God and in Christ, we live in the age of anticipation, not gratification, which means we have to trust God's promises over our perceptions. How are things going? Terrible, they're not going my way. But God has a promise that when he shows up in history physically again at his second coming, we will be ready because we will have been refined and we will be ready to receive perfection forever. So our highest satisfaction is not what we receive in this life, but what we are promised in the next. And the refining that we receive in this life is preparing us to enjoy what's promised for us in the next. So you're here today, and maybe things are not going your way. Maybe you're here today and you're frustrated and you've been carrying it because things didn't go your way five years ago, your first marriage, 10 years ago, five months ago. I, I don't know. But I want to give you four things to confess and four things to pray and four things to declare and four things to tell God from the bottom of your heart. As the Holy Spirit guides you, you grab onto one of these. We'll pray. We'll sing. We'll respond. And you feel free to respond to this God who is a great father, a good, good father, who's an amazing savior, who's a wonderful counselor, who's an almighty God, who's a deliverer, and who's a rescuer, but he's also a fire. God, you alone are worthy. Forgive me, God, for just coming to you because you're useful or could be useful. Forgive me, God, for trying to manipulate you by doing religious things. You, God, are just worthy. Let me begin my prayers from there. You are just worthy. Whether I get my way or not, God, you are just worthy. God, I give you my surrender. That's, the really, that's really the only battle we need to fight, just to get to surrender. God, today, I'm giving you my surrender. God, I, I, I want to accept you as a refining fire. I see it's part of your love for me. God, I understand if you were not a refining fire, heaven would be empty and we would be undone and helpless and hopeless. And God, because you're a refining fire, that means you're preparing something. You're trying to bring the best to us. And so God, because of that, I believe the best is yet to come. Please bow your heads, close your eyes, let's pray together. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is just 
incredibly clear with every heart in every campus, with everyone watching online. God, that you would just shine a light on the next step that we need to take, the truth that we need to declare, these four statements that we need to confess before you today. Some of these statements may prompt us to repent of sin. Some of those, these statements may prompt us to shout with joy. Some of these statements may cause us to bow down and surrender. But God, may all of these statements be made from a heart of faith, not with, from religious show, but a heart that is moving closer to you, O oh God, because you, O oh God, are worthy. God, would you have your way in this place? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.